Welcome to Skim This. Whether it's in your group chat or in your office Slack, you've probably been hearing about people getting COVID who got the vaccine. We'll tell you what you need to know about these breakthrough infections and why health rules around the country are changing fast. Then we'll break down some of the week's headlines, including the first hearing on the January 6th Capitol riot and a possible U.S. withdrawal from Iraq. Later, we'll explain why drug makers and distributors are paying a hefty price for their role in the opioid crisis and why a lot of focus on the Olympics this week was directed off the competition floor. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. It has been a week with a lot of COVID news and a lot of it has not been great. What are the chances of getting COVID-19 after receiving a vaccine. Concerns about breakthrough infections are certainly at the top of mind for a lot of people. Hundreds of Cape Cod residents and vacationers vaccinated but positive. The Yankees postponed their game against the Red Sox after several fully vaccinated players tested positive. As the more contagious Delta variant spreads throughout the country, COVID-19 infections are once again on the rise. So far, we've mostly seen major spikes in cases and hospitalizations among unvaccinated people and in unvaccinated communities. But there's another group who's been getting infected with COVID-19, people who have been vaccinated. It's been the talk of a lot of our group techs, and it's been making us reach for our masks. So today, we wanted to break down what you need to know about breakthrough infections and what they might mean for the next phase of the pandemic. Let's start with a definition. Breakthrough infections occur when a vaccinated person contracts the virus. If that sounds counterintuitive, like wasn't the vaccine supposed to protect us from getting COVID in the first place, there's a lot of important context here. First, doctors always expected to see breakthrough infections. Here was Dr. Shira Darone from Tufts Medical Center speaking to Boston's ABC affiliate WCVB. Breakthrough infections are what we expect because the vaccine isn't 100% effective. Take the Pfizer vaccine, for instance. It's 95% effective, which still means there's a 5% chance COVID breaks through the vaccine's defenses and infects you. So not only are vaccines not 100% effective, but people have also been changing their behavior a lot. There will also be more breakthrough infections when vaccinated people do things they didn't do before, like spending time in crowded indoor space. Got it. So going back to your favorite bar or friend's birthday, even while vaxxed, still poses a slight risk. And that was always going to be the case. But then enter Delta. Because the Delta variant is so much more contagious, it's going to penetrate that armor that the vaccine provides a little more easily. Okay, so that's what breakthrough infections are. That sounds bad, but is that really why public health officials are freaking out? Not quite. First, there are way fewer infections among vaccinated people than unvaccinated people. Breakthrough infections appear to be rare, despite how much media attention they're getting. Most people who've had breakthrough infections have reported super mild COVID symptoms like congestion and fatigue. The CDC estimated that 97% of people hospitalized and more than 99% of people dying from COVID are unvaccinated. So public health officials are clearly more concerned with unvaccinated people. And keeping all of that in mind, the number one thing to know is vaccines are still the best protection against COVID-19, 
And even if you get a breakthrough infection, you likely won't get very sick. For a lot of people, the summer was just starting to feel normal again. But given rising cases among both vaccinated and unvaccinated people, is everything good about to be taken away from us? That depends on where you live. Individual states, cities, and counties are all making their own rules when it comes to protecting against the virus. One major shift you might see? Los Angeles County will reinstate indoor mask mandates regardless of vaccine status. Cities like Los Angeles, Savannah, Las Vegas, and St. Louis have all reinstated indoor mask mandates regardless of your vaccination status. The reason? Protecting unvaccinated people. And given that there's no real way to spot between an unvaccinated or a vaccinated person in a coffee shop or a store, mask mandates are an easy way to add a layer of protection in communities. Plus, it's unclear whether people with breakthrough infections can actually transmit COVID to others, so masking up may be a good precaution to take. And even though actual mandates are localized right now, on Tuesday, the CDC jumped on the bandwagon. They're now recommending fully vaxxed people begin wearing masks indoors again, in areas where COVID-19 is surging. So that's one type of community protection against the virus. Another major shift you might see? More places requiring vaccines. Like in New York City, where city employees now either have to mask up or get vaccinated. The same goes for state workers in California. And on the federal level, President Biden just announced today that he's going to require all civilian federal employees to either get vaccinated or be subject to wearing masks, social distancing, and regular testing. We should note, this isn't just happening in state and federal governments. It's also happening in offices around the country. This week, Google and Facebook both announced, if you want to come back to the office IRL, you need to get vaxxed. Vaccine mandates are a tricky issue, but they may become more common as time passes. Last week, a federal judge appointed by President Trump ruled that Indiana University, which is a public university, can require students to get the vaccine before coming to campus this fall. And some legal analysts say this decision could set the precedent for more vaccine mandates to come. And one other way to try to fight back against the Delta variant doesn't involve mandates, but incentives. Just before publishing this, President Biden endorsed a plan to pay unvaccinated Americans $100 to roll up their sleeves. Those programs would be run by state and local governments, but they could be funded using money already set aside by a pandemic relief bill passed by Congress. So those are some ways communities are looking to protect against rising case numbers, regardless of your vaccination status. But you might be wondering, if I'm vaxxed, what can I do to keep myself safe right now, even if my city or town isn't changing any of the rules? Well, you've got a number of options. The first thing you can do, no matter where you live, is dig out your old bag of masks and start wearing them indoors again, like when you run errands or grab groceries. You can also choose to try to keep your social events or dates outdoors, request to eat outside at restaurants, or scale back on indoor social commitments. And some doctors suggest you may want to consider adjusting your behavior depending on who you're with. Here was Dr. Jen Ashton on Good Morning America. We have to remember that it is still important to take precautions, especially when we are around vulnerable groups or if someone is unvaccinated. 
So if you're going somewhere where you aren't sure if people have their shots, or if you're going to see your vaccinated elderly grandparents, consider putting that mask on again. We should also note, you can make these decisions about masking up more or how you socialize based on where you live or who you live with. If your community has a high vaccination rate, you might feel more comfortable living like it's still June 2021 because a lot of people around you have a high degree of protection. But if you live in a state or county with a low vaccination rate and a rising number of infections, especially in southern states like Texas, Florida, Louisiana, and Georgia, or if you live with someone who's immunocompromised, you may want to add in an extra layer of precaution and keep things outdoors or reach for that mask more often. We know these fast-changing rules can feel confusing and a little overwhelming. The skim has got you covered every step of the way. As things continue to change, we'll keep you updated in our daily newsletter. Sign up at theskim.com. All right, let's get to some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, there was a major hearing on Capitol Hill this week. I was more afraid to work at the Capitol than my entire deployment to Iraq. I was grabbed, beaten, tased, all while being called a traitor to my country. I was at risk of being stripped of and killed with my own firearm. More than six months later, January 6th still isn't over for me. And I'm now receiving private counseling therapy for the persistent emotional trauma of that day. Here's the context. On Tuesday, four Capitol Police officers took the mic in the first House committee hearing on the deadly January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. That hearing kicks off a longer investigation into what exactly went down that day. But not everyone in Congress is on board to learn more. This committee has been caught up in political fighting between Dems and Republicans over who can even sit on the panel in the first place. Last week, Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi blocked two Republicans who'd voted against certifying Joe Biden as president from joining the committee. In return, Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said, go ahead, but I'm going to pull the three other Republicans from the committee as well, and we're going to do our own investigation. Despite the political drama, the officer's emotional testimony this week gave lawmakers and those who tuned in to watch a terrifying look into the events of January 6th. We learned just how traumatizing that day was for these law enforcement officers. All of them said they feared for their lives. The officers also told lawmakers, cool it with the partisan fighting, and that partisan politics is getting in the way of a proper investigation. Finally, we also learned that this committee, which does include two House Republicans, wants to subpoena former President Trump and his allies to learn more about what the White House did or didn't do to stop the attack. Whether that actually happens is still TBD, but we'll be keeping an eye out. Next up, a federal ban on evictions dating back to the early days of the pandemic could be about to expire. Here's what you need to know. Last year, the CDC banned most evictions across the country, saying our authority to do a lot of things to stop the spread of disease includes stopping people from being kicked out of their homes. The policy was so popular that President Trump and Biden both extended it. But now, time is finally up, and the eviction and foreclosures ban officially expires on July 31st. And nobody knows for certain what's going to happen next. In places like New York and California, state laws banning evictions will stay in place for a little while longer. 
but elsewhere, evictions could restart immediately. And according to one survey, around 16% of American renters are currently behind on rent. So a lot of people could be affected. Federal housing assistance could help people make rent and avoid eviction, but potentially millions of Americans are still at risk of being evicted before that money reaches them, especially since federal aid has been super slow to reach people. And that could explain why Team Biden was reportedly in a bit of a panic this week, getting reps from all 50 states on the phone to figure out how to prevent an all-out eviction crisis. Whether that happens, or if Congress swoops in to extend the eviction ban, could have a big impact on whether other pandemic-era protections are also allowed to expire in the coming months. Increased unemployment insurance will run out after Labor Day, while expanded food stamp benefits and a pause on repaying federal student loans will stop at the end of September. Twenty twenty one is shaping up as the year the U.S. is RSVPing no to a bunch of foreign military commitments, or is it? Going into this year, we were still paying to keep troops in Afghanistan almost 20 years after signing up for what's turned into the longest war in U.S. history. And we still have thousands of troops in Iraq, some 18 years after first deploying there. Together, these two conflicts have cost the lives of thousands of U.S. soldiers. And experts say both wars helped cement America's foreign policy focus on the Middle East at a time when maybe we should have been focusing elsewhere, like on containing China or on investing in things here at home. Speaking of which, the financial cost of these conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq have been pretty staggering, too. By one estimate, the U.S. has spent more than $2 trillion in Afghanistan. Totally unfun fact, that's $2,000 billion. And Iraq hasn't been cheap either, with an estimated cost of also around $2 trillion. On recent episodes, we've talked about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, which President Biden says is on pace to be wrapped up by the end of August. But this week, we learned Iraq could be next. Kinda. Iraq's prime minister showed up in Washington this week eager to deliver one message, that Iraq was ready to protect itself without U.S. combat troops. And by Monday evening, it looked like maybe the prime minister got what he wanted after he and Biden reportedly agreed to end the U.S. combat mission in Iraq by the end of this year. Unfortunately, the context here is important, and it reveals that ending the U.S. war in Iraq isn't going to be easy. According to the New York Times, any changes are mostly going to occur on paper, not in terms of soldiers physically returning home. Reportedly, the Pentagon is planning to just change the job titles of U.S. soldiers in Iraq. As in, you're not a combat troop, you're an advisor or a trainer. If you're wondering, what does that really accomplish? Good question. Apparently, the U.S. thinks it will help Iraq's prime minister, who's running for re-election. Now, he could claim that the U.S. combat mission is over, we're self-sufficient, even if the rest of us are in on the fact that the U.S. is still very much there, 18 years later and counting. Last week, four companies agreed to pay out a $26 billion settlement for their role in America's opioid epidemic, even if technically they didn't admit any fault. 
Given that the opioid epidemic killed more than 93,000 people in the last year alone, and since this case is supposed to be one where pharma companies are held responsible, we wanted to know how big of a deal is this? Is $26 billion enough to undo some of the damage the opioid crisis has caused? We're going to start with what this specific settlement was about. Drug manufacturer Johnson & Johnson, plus three major drug distributors, have been in and out of court over the last few years. In this case, it's alleged that Johnson & Johnson provided the raw ingredient used in certain opioid painkillers to other companies that produce the drugs. J&J was also blamed for downplaying how addictive the drugs were and pushing opioids in far more cases than where they were medically necessary. Meanwhile, three major drug distributors are accused of ignoring suspiciously large opioid deliveries and not doing enough to stop addictive, lethal drugs from entering communities. So many different communities thought these companies were at fault for the opioid crisis that tons of them all sued together. You have 3,000 or so cities and counties that are actively involved in litigation. That's Valerie Bauman, a senior investigative reporter covering the opioid crisis for Bloomberg Law. She says the money from this settlement goes directly to counties and cities, which will fund social services related to opioid addiction. Think treatment programs, needle exchanges, and funding for first responders. But given the magnitude of the opioid crisis in the U.S., how far is the $26 billion from the settlement actually going to go? All of my sources this time last year were saying that the dollar amount was going to be much bigger than this. So it's not a cheap problem to fix, and the cost of the damage versus the actual dollar amount we're talking is, is really disproportionate. We're talking about entire communities that have their economy ravaged because their workforce disappeared to addiction. We're talking about businesses that have crumbled in the light of this crisis. We're talking about children, infants who are going to grow up and need lifelong care to deal with the fact that they were born dependent on opioids. I think I'm mostly surprised because I think when this gets sliced up between all the different players, it's not going to go very far. Not only is this $26 billion going to be divvied up among a lot of communities, it's not exactly going to get paid out tomorrow. Johnson & Johnson will have nine years to pay out $5 billion, while Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson, who are the three drug distributors, get 18 years to settle up. Plus, Bauman says plenty of people are still angry about the damage and feel like the settlement lets companies off the hook. It's not uncommon for settlements, whether with a federal enforcement agency or with a lawsuit, for companies to pay a bunch of money and not admit any blame. And that's what happened here. And that has enraged a lot of people who've been touched by the crisis. The question I keep hearing from my sources is, is how are we going to prevent something like this from happening again if nobody's held accountable? So we'll see. We'll have to see. This settlement isn't the end of the line for other opioid lawsuits. There are still big trials coming up in San Francisco, New York, and Ohio, as well as potentially a whole new wave of lawsuits against pharmacies. And Bauman says there's still a chance that this $26 billion won't be the final amount that companies involved in this lawsuit end up paying. For this settlement to go ahead, 
95% of the cities and counties that sued have to agree to the terms. And even if they do, that leaves room for 5% to disagree, which could leave them with some leverage. That still leaves about 1,800 local governments that could file their own individual lawsuits. So opioid litigation isn't going anywhere. At The Skim, we're all about living smarter. And part of that involves avoiding bad decisions. So we were pretty intrigued to see a report this week on the top 10 consumer complaints from 2020. These are complaints that go way beyond leaving a bad review. They're the kinds of things that cause people to report businesses for things that were super sketchy or may have been illegal. If you're already flashing back to your last visit to the car mechanic or the pressure tactics you encountered at a dealership, you're not alone. In our annual survey, auto-related complaints is always at the top of the list. That's Susan Grant from the Consumer Federation of America. She says auto-related complaints often involve deceptive financing practices, shady advertising, and repairs that didn't fix anything. Considering the cost of cars and our dependence on them, getting ripped off is that much worse. People really rely on their cars for work and for school and to get to the doctors. And cars are expensive. They're expensive to buy and they're expensive to repair. There are just so many things that can go wrong with either a car rental or purchase or repair that that's always at the top of the list. The next most common complaints involve home repairs and landlord disputes. These aren't new either. Everyone's got a story about that contractor who bailed on a job, or a landlord that refused to perform repairs, or wouldn't return your security deposit. But several trends are new, because the pandemic has messed with pretty much everything. It disrupted the supply chain, which meant that things they took longer to get there because there were fewer repair technicians available. It took longer to get repairs made for things like travel and events. You had restrictions severely impacting people's plans for weddings, for cruises, for vacation rentals. People who were laid off found themselves in financial straits, which made paying their bills difficult. So they were having to work out problems with their landlords and their credit card companies and their mortgage servicers, but they were also vulnerable to scams. Another thing that changed during the pandemic is where we shopped, as a lot of us ditched the mall for the internet or apps. Shopping on apps like Instagram is super convenient, but also pretty ripe with scams. And this problem seems to be getting worse since platforms like Instagram don't make it easy to know if a company is legit. You just see their cool product, the fact that they have a few thousand followers, and then it's time to pay. You know, the old saying on the internet, nobody knows if you're a dog. Well, reaching out to younger potential customers who are on social media, that is a great way for legitimate sellers to promote their products and services. But it's also an easy way for scammers to try to promote what they're selling. If you've been the victim of one of these scams, you've probably realized too late that the comment section was filled with frustrated customers and that the anonymous person giving you customer service in your DMs isn't going to give you your money back. Grant says if a physical business ripped you off like that, you might have some options. But online, that's going to be a lot harder 
And scammers, many of whom are based overseas, know that. The internet has just opened up much more widely the potential to easily and inexpensively reach into people's wallets across the world and take their money for something that you never intend to give them. If you have a complaint against somebody in another country, don't count on a domestic law enforcement agency to be able to do anything about it. It's hard enough for them to bring action against miscreants in the United States. So I think that there's something to be said for shopping locally. All right. So in addition to avoiding international sellers, unless they're really established brands, what else can we do to avoid being scammed? Grant has five quick tips. First up, take advantage of sites that track complaints. There are lots of places where you could check, for instance, the reputation of a car dealer. The Better Business Bureau, which is not a government agency but does also handle complaints, releases information about the complaints that it's gotten about particular businesses and how well they've actually responded to those complaints. Grant also recommends other so-called gripe sites like ripoffreports.com if you want to look for a pattern of complaints about a certain business. Her second tip is for anyone having work done on their house. Do not pay the whole amount before the work is completed because then you have no leverage. If the contractor walks off your job or does a terrible job, get a written contract that lays out a schedule of payments that's proportionate to the work that's going to be done. And you shouldn't be paying for things that haven't already been done. Third, use gift cards quickly, since businesses close, and if you wait too long, that gift certificate you've been stashing in that miscellaneous drawer in the kitchen might not be worth anything. Fourth, for travel, remember that basic travel insurance usually only covers certain types of cancellations, like if you're too sick to travel. But if you don't want to travel because of the risk of, say, getting sick during a global pandemic, you might be out of luck. So look into cancel for anything insurance. It'll definitely cost more, but it could be worth it. And finally, how you pay matters too. Pay with a credit card because under federal law, you have the right to dispute the charges if you never get anything or if what you got doesn't remotely resemble what you were promised. And that's a protection that you don't have with other forms of payment. Plus you haven't paid the bill yet when the charge is posted. So that's a very powerful tool that consumers should avail themselves of. For more tips on shopping smarter and avoiding the top 10 most common consumer complaints, check out the link in our show notes. We're nearing the halfway point of the Olympics. And while there have been a lot of athletic highlights so far, the games that we originally thought might be remembered because of COVID now look like they'll go down as the Olympics where we finally started seeing athletes as people. And while there have been a lot of athletic highlights so far, the games that we originally thought might be remembered because of COVID now look like they'll go down as the Olympics where we finally started seeing athletes as people. This became especially true after Simone Biles pulled out of competition this week because of her mental health. Her story has also caused us to revisit some Olympic moments from the past and wonder if they were actually more messed up than we realized at the time. So Carrie Strug, it is up to her. Like back in 1996, when 18-year-old gymnast Carrie Strug performed a vault on a broken ankle, an injury that ended up ending her career. 
The images of Strug sticking her vault while grimacing have been an iconic Olympic highlight for years, but now they're being talked about in a new light. She is hurt badly. Now people are saying athletes shouldn't have to risk catastrophic injuries to compete. And simply taking one for the team shouldn't cut it anymore as an excuse to sideline an athlete's own best interests. To hear more about what it's been like watching these big Olympic narratives take shape and change how we talk about athletes on a daily basis, we called up Lindsay Zarniak. She hosts the daily sports show On Her Turf on NBC's streaming service Peacock. And she told us the major sea change she's observing is an increased focus on mental health. We're seeing women in particular not being afraid to stand up and say, I'm speaking out for myself. It's like, wow, what a moment and what an incredible decision to do that and to have the guts to say, I'm not competing. Here's why. And I think that's what's different about these Olympics. And that's why this is something that is really going to be remembered for that. And while women like Simone Biles are leading the charge, all athletes are joining in on the conversation, a conversation a lot of us have been having over the last year. I feel like through the pandemic, a lot of conversations I was having, whether they were in sports or with friends, was about how this time has taught a lot of us that vulnerability is really something that can help. And I think everybody can benefit from that. And I was thinking earlier today, like, you know, that's something actually that we're now seeing at these Olympics. It's people aren't afraid to talk about what they deal with. That's not pretty and not great. And we're seeing that from the biggest stars, men and women. Informing viewers about the mental health challenges that athletes face is definitely important. But Zarniak is less certain that athletic federations that govern individual sports are going to be able to make substantial changes that would actually improve this. As far as it pertains to mental health, I don't know. You hope the answer is yes. There are certain things the Olympics can do on its own, like offering more mental health resources to athletes. Organizers say they're already doing that. Olympic broadcasters have also changed television standards to help demonstrate that athletes are people and not objects by banning zooming in on individual body parts. And other changes are being discussed by individual sports federations or promoted by athletes, like changing rules that force athletes to interact with the media in high-pressure moments, rules that dictate what they can wear in competition or what substances they can ingest after a tough day. Zarniak is hopeful the outrage and attention that's been paid to some pretty archaic rules around competition or how athletes have to live could get them fixed. This really does feel different to me because I really, I do think that there are enough women that are talking about this that now have a confidence to say, this is not okay and we're standing up for it. I think that there really can be change and that there will be significant change. And so I'm hopeful at least that that's the case. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. And we had additional help this week from Sajin Coriellis. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. The Skim senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. And until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish with The Skim where this week we're talking to 2008 Olympic gold medalist Nastia Lukin. Follow 9to5ish wherever you listen to your podcasts.